All right. All right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 3. <clears throat> John chapter 3. I'm, I'm getting much better. I thank you for praying for me. I shared last couple weeks I've been sick. Thank you for praying for me. I'm feeling much better, but I'm going to still cough through this sermon. So bear with me. But I'm feeling much better. Thank you for praying. All right. John chapter 3. We're going to be in first 18 verses. <clears throat> if you guys are just joining us, we're so glad you could be here. Welcome to our community. You got to see a little bit of, a little bit of life in our community through different performances. Shepherds, they're not retiring. They're doing it again next year. They got to memorize their lines. They were great, but they got to memorize their lines. All right? Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm being like Asian parent. You, you were better, but you could have gotten a little bit better. <laughs> that was amazing. That was amazing. Um, during this year's Advent season, what we call from beginning of December to today, that's what we call Advent season in the Christian calendar, we've been looking at several passages throughout the Old Testament and New Testament about this baby, about this wonderful baby that was born on the Christmas, that first Christmas morning. And today we are in John 3 and we finally get to hear from the baby himself. And through, through the most iconic Bible passage of all time, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Sometimes familiarity can obscure the awe-inspiring significance of those words of Jesus and the transformative impact they hold if these words of Jesus were true. Let me repeat myself. Sometimes familiarity, and we are very familiar with John 3.16 if you grew up in the church, can obscure the awe-inspiring significance of those words of Jesus, transformative impact they hold. So we got to look into the, I want to look into the context of why Jesus said what he said in John 3, 6. And John chapter 3, verse 1, that's where we're starting, tells us a wealthy, highly influential, educated man named Nicodemus came to meet with Jesus this very night. John 3, 16 came out of this conversation with a man who is not poor, who is not broke, who is not sort of lost, but he Externally, he seems to be doing really well in life. Highly successful and a teacher of the law. Now, there's been much debate about why Nicodemus had come that night to see Jesus. Some assume that he came out of this genuine curiosity. That he saw something in Jesus that was different from other rabbis. And he just needed to see him and talk to him. Others <coughs> say Jesus came. To represent the Pharisee community. To talk to Jesus in sort of back, back, backdoor political move. To tell Jesus, you should play by the rules. You should join us. As great teacher, you should be with us. And no one knows for sure because John doesn't tell us why Nicodemus came that night. We could only speculate. What's important about this passage that this man, this proud, wealthy, successful leader of, and a teacher of the law came and he's now face to face with Jesus. That's important. 
And now, no matter how he got here or his intentions, through John's account in John chapter 3, we know deep down inside, he knew there was something radically different about this man, Jesus. Things that he say, the compliments he, make in this, he makes in this conversation. <clears throat> More importantly, despite all that Nicodemus had accomplished and achieved, and he achieved a lot, accomplished a lot, you can sense a lingering discontentment. Everyone say discontentment. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Discontentment. He had this discontentment that persisted in his own heart. That kind of bleeds out in this conversation. He has come perhaps hoping that Jesus can help him. What's the lingering discontentment that bleeds out from this conversation in John chapter 3? Nicodemus had scaled the heights of success, earned recognition, amassed wealth of experiences. Nicodemus at this time, he's much older than Jesus. Jesus is rather young. He's accomplished, near retirement age. He's this old man who's, who's done it all, experienced it all. But there was this persistent sense of incompleteness that tugs at the, edge, at the edges of his heart. It is this quiet whisper yearning for something more profound than anything he has accomplished up to this point of life. <clears throat> Interestingly, a page in John chapter 4, just next page, from this, this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus, we find Jesus engaging in a strikingly different encounter from John chapter 3. They're back to back. One that stands in stark contrast to his meeting with Nicodemus. This time, he meets with a woman at the opposite end of social and motor spectrum. Unlike Nicodemus, this woman in John chapter 4, she is not a Jew, a Samaritan, an outsider, not, not the people of God, half Jew. Her life story marked by a series of relationships, lacks the stability of committed marital bond. She has no many lovers. She had many husbands or many men, but has not found one to call her own. And Jesus actually in this story goes intentionally to her town and waits for her and meets with her immediately after this encounter in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. <clears throat> As 2023 is coming to a close, can you believe it? 2023 is only a few days away. Perhaps some of you had a wonderful 2023. 2023 was amazing, perhaps. Maybe perhaps on paper, some of you guys are shaking your head already. Perhaps you've been promoted, you met the love of your life, finally paid off your credit card debt or college debt, or, or you bought the house that you wanted or moved into a neighborhood that you wanted, sent your kids to school that you wanted. Yet strangely, despite these achievements and experiences, there exists a persistent sense of incompleteness that tugs from within. For others of us, 2023 just was a terrible year. It was a year to forget. Perhaps you faced relational complexities, navigated career uncertainties, or grippled with the challenges of marriage or parenting. We have a lot of young parents. I mean, I, even like today when we're preparing, I said, someone's going to cry. Things are going to, you know, go, go off the handles. It's okay. This is Christmas. Some of you guys are gripping with being a young parent or being married for the first time. Marriage is hard. Second or third time too, but, you know, for your first time marriage is tough. 
<coughs> in the face of these difficulties, you may feel like you're barely staying above waters, like the woman in John chapter 4. You know, one of the I recently watched is called Beef on Netflix. I refused to watch it, you know, Korean American. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch it. I finally got around to it. And this show, Beef, fantastic show, absolutely fantastic, right? Not, not G-rated, you know, all the other stuff, but it, it is actually really great writing. And the show is about two Asian-Americans <coughs> named Amy Lau and Danny Cho, if you haven't seen the show. And these two sh- strangers who come from very different places of life. One, highly, Amy is highly successful, educated, extremely wealthy. She sells art and different things. Danny... Danny Cho, he, his character is completely broke, working odd jobs just to make a living, barely surviving, hoping something will turn out. And the story begins in the first episode where they meet at a parking lot of a hardware store. They're both driving and get into this spat. Danny's trying to pull out, and then, you know, just the, the, the average, you, you, you want to park out, but they want to park in. I won't spoil the show, but this whole altercation escalates rather quickly. I mean, the show just takes off from episode one. But you ask why? Why, why were they so upset about this? This is the typical traffic drama. It escalated quickly because why? The, the writers, they tell the story, they were both extremely unhappy. They're extremely unhappy about where they are in life. Very different places, two people, complete strangers, Yet strangely, wanting both wanting different things in life. And we look at Amy's life, Amy character's life. She has everything that people would want. A nice house, amazing husband, great job, wonderful child. Yet utterly, perhaps even more unhappy than Danny character in the story. <coughs> in, John chapter, in John chapter 3, when we, we meet a man named Nicodemus, this ruler, intelligent, leader, he comes to Jesus, and I imagine Nicodemus to be more like Amy, where she has accomplished everything, yet there is deep down, there's deep down um, emptiness and discontentment. So he, this man comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus welcomes him, and he wants to have this conversation with Nicodemus. He goes out and meets with this man Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I'm going to just tell you the story. But immediately... Seeing Nicodemus, seeing the struggle and, and, and the frustration that he has brought with himself, Jesus do, does not mince his words. He's not distracted by high compliment that Nicodemus gives. He tells him straight up. He tells him straightforward. This highly accomplished man in his presence in verse 3, he says, unless you are born again, or the better translation is born, abo- born from above, born anew again. The, the, the accurate Greek translation is on the screen. Jesus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, Jesus is telling this man, highly successful, highly accomplished. He says, all of your success, accomplishments, influence, fame, and power will not give you what you are hoping to receive from them. I, I tell you, you're searching, you're looking, you're thinking is what you can achieve on your own. They will never be enough. They will never be able to get what you're hoping to receive from them. And in preceding verses, 
after this encounter, Nicodemus, hearing Jesus' straightforward truth, attempts his best protest. He says, how can man be again? What do you mean, Jesus? Clarify. Yet to no avail, Jesus once again reminds him throughout this conversation, it's not what you have done or have not done, what you have accomplished. None of those things can fill the void that you feel deep down inside. None of those things can help you with this sense of discontentment that you might not know where it's coming from. At verse 14, Jesus says, this is the only solution. And this is really bizarre what Jesus says. When the Son of Man is lifted up like Moses' bronze serpent in the wilderness, one can have eternal life. <clears throat> Jesus knows Nicodemus is a teacher, and he knows the Mosaic Law. History of Israelites very well. Knowing what Nicodemus knows, he, he connects the Old Testament scripture and says, remember how your ancestors were? How they were saved in the wilderness? In the book of Numbers, there's an account where Israelites were rescued from hands of Egyptians. And now they were on their way to promised land, and they had spent many years in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we see Israel this is amazing rescue. After a while, life in the desert was hard and begins to accuse God and Moses of bringing them out of Egypt so that they can just die in the wilderness. And God, God sends these serpents as a punishment. And these serpents struck, many, and struck Israelites and many were beaten and died. And God had mercy by telling Moses to craft a bronze serpent and mount it on a pole. Anyone beaten <clears throat> need only to look upon the raised serpent to be healed. That's the bizarre story. And Jesus says in the same way, Nicodemus, I too must be lifted up. And those who look to me, those who believe in me, will not perish but have eternal life. I thought a lot about this image of this Go, this bronze serpent. I thought, what a bizarre, bizarre account. Who looked to the, why look to the image of a serpent to be saved? Why not staff, Moses' staff? Why not something else that is more godly? But God says, look at this bronze serpent. Friends, bronze serpent in that story and in our passage represents the full force of evil. Not simply our grumbling, our complaining, but in every way we have failed to recognize God for who he is. Jesus willingly took on the full force of evil, absorbing the collective weight of our sins on the cross. So when Jesus is lifted up, because he's talking about his own crucifixion, when we look to Jesus hanging on the cross, what do we see? We see the ten tangible reality of evil that at once gripped us all. On the cross, Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God, a wrath we right, rightfully deserved. And the cross, central to John's profound picture of who God is, exemplifies the depth of God's love. From here in John chapter 3, now John's saying, this is, this is our God. God who bore all of your wrath that you rightfully deserve for you. And as you look to him, 
what you have earned or what you have accomplished or how you're living, but just simply by turning your face, leaving in his words, it's to eternal life. And this, right after verse 15, this is where we get, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, and his only son had to be lifted up. Whoever turns towards him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the content of John 3.16. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, there's so much to unpack. I mean, people have spent years unpacking what Jesus really means in John 3.16. But for our time today, because I only got maybe five more minutes, I want to look at one word, just one word. And the word that I want to look at is called zoe. Everyone say zoe, which is translated as life in the English translation, eternal life. Will not perish, but have eternal zoe. You see, zoe is one of the two main ways in the Greek Bible describes this idea of life. Zoe is not the only way to describe life. There's bios and there is zoe. Here, Jesus says, when you believe in me, you're going to have zoe life. To me trying to explain zoe and bios, I want to lean on a man named C.S. Lewis. I've heard him several times, probably in this series. <coughs> C.S. Lewis, an amazing writer and thinker, he helps us understand. He spends a whole section in his book called Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He says in this book the difference between Zoe and Bios. Let me quote Lewis. He says, In reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which come to us through nature, and which everything else in nature is always ending subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food. Is bios, the spiritual life which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is zoe. Bios has to be sure a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, <coughs> but only to the sort of resemblance there is between a photo, a place, a statue, and a man. A man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as a big a change as a statue. What's changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is all about. That is precisely what John is talking about. What Jesus is talking about in our passage. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are statues and there is a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to life. And Jesus says, this was the very purpose. If you believe in me... You're not going to experience bios, but I'm going to show you Zoe life. And this is the purpose of Jesus' arrival. God the Son, who is fully Zoe. We learned about this last week. He is the Logos. He is the expression of God. God who is Zoe through and through humbled himself by taking on, taking on our failures, our shame, our mess. In order to what? Transform us from inside out. So what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, what you are wanting is Zoe, but you cannot find Zoe in Bios. I want to wrap up our time by going back to verse 14 and 15. 
where John speaks about Israelites in the wilderness. And this is, this is the end. Late Pastor Tim Keller says something very profound and helpful about how God's people must think about the idea of wilderness. When we think about wilderness, Pastor Keller, he says, it, per, it should profoundly shape how we think about life as humans. And he says, <clears throat> wilderness is one of the helpful paradigms through which we are meant to understand our lives. So what Pascal is saying is wilderness is not simply a way for us to get to promised land, but wilderness is actually how we should view life, all of life. Throughout the scripture, we see the wilderness narratives continue to come up again and again. Not just Israelites after Egypt, but throughout their history, they're taken away from their home and they're away in the wilderness. And the wilderness that we find in the scripture is not some type of forest. When we think about wilderness, we have different ideas from different culture. But when the scripture talks about wilderness, it's not some type of forest. Rather, it's a a desert. Hot, dry, miserable. 20-some years ago, I spent a month in Mongolia in the Gobi Desert. And desert is no joke. Like, you not only will not thrive, but you would barely survive. Like, I would barely survive. And I had all the things we needed. And if you spend any time in the desert, you know it's, it's a place that we cannot thrive. When God's people were released from Egypt, they wandered into the wilderness for years and years. It was a very short distance, but they spent years and years in the wilderness. They were only able to get by in the wilderness because God had provided for them through manna, through water, uh, the pillar of fire, the, the pillar of clouds by leading them. And what Pastor Keller says is, friends, in, simil- in the similar way, our lives on this earth, in its current state, cannot and will not fulfill our deepest longings. Much like the physical desert, the world is incapable of satisfying the profound desires of heart. Case in point, Nicodemus, why is he here? That's Nicodemus. We assume if we could just marry the right person, get the right, first of all, you, don't, you never marry the right person. They become right person eventually as you survive marriage for many of us. We assume if we could just marry the right person, get the right job, buy the dream house, those things give bring lasting happiness. And we get so busy and get caught up in trying to get, 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 and we don't even realize how disconnected we are. Yet if you look around, we know many people who have achieved many of those things. Yet they're utterly miserable. Some of us, you guys have done well. You guys have really nice cars. You guys have really nice jobs. You guys send your kids to best schools. Yet if we're honest, there is a sense of discontentment that might exist in us. (coughs) And it's because the world is in its fallen condition and cannot meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Bible is very clear. Romans, Paul is very clear. The world cannot meet our needs because it is fallen and broken. And life, according to the biblical perspective, is wilderness, full of challenges and disappointments. And many of us, when faced with difficulties or loss, tend to question what such, why such events occur. Behind this questioning often lies the assumption that if certain 
circumstances were different, happiness would prevail. We would finally be happy. Yet time after time, the biblical narratives, wilderness is the very place where God's people learn to trust and obey. Why did Israel spend so many years in the wilderness when it was a very short distance? Simple. It took them that many years simply to learn to trust and obey God. In fact, the whole generation had to die out, except just few people. So the wilderness experiences in our own lives become the very opportunity for you and I to experience God. Friends, the wilderness experiences of our lives are the very, even though we don't like it, we despise it, we hate it, we want to move to the promised land, it is the very place where we will meet God. When we are able to, finally able to see life as the wilderness and the very place where God meets with us, it will completely transform the way we view everything in life. <coughs> For many, Christmas serves as a painful reminder of gap between the idolized vision of life and the harsh reality of where our life is. I remember growing up, my parents had moved, were poor, immigrant family. I remember my friends, my non-immigrant friends had nice trees, gives, nice clothes. I mean, it was like big deal, Nintendo 64, whatever, right? It was amazing. I remember thinking, we've never had a Christmas tree. I remember spending Christmas just like, man, Christmas sucks. It's a reminder every, every year that our family did not make it. Our family did not have enough money to buy a decent tree. I remember thinking there's this gap between what I thought we should be doing. Christmas is like on TV, on the shows, in the movies. Home Alone, this is Christmas. Home Alone is different. I mean, this is what Christmas should be. But I felt like, no, that's not my life. My mom thought it was a waste of money. Like, no, no tree. There's no, there's no tree at Dollar Store. We're not getting no tree. Even as a kid, I remember feeling the gap. And as, it, as I've gotten older... You know, I, now we have trees and we do gifts. And because, like, now I'm, like, reacting to my childhood, I want my kids to experience everything about Christmas. Yet I still sense that gap. For many of us, Christmas can be a painful reminder of the absence of someone that we once loved or highlight the unmet expectations in various aspects of our lives. It could be relationships. It could be your marriage. It could be friendships. It could be parenting, it could be your career. But I find so much comfort knowing that we have a Savior who not only came, but someone who walked alongside in our pain. See, we have a Savior who intimately understands the nuance of our struggles and depth of our sorrows and the gap that exists in each of us, Jesus understands because he walked in our shoes. And as we navigate the complexity of life, acknowledging the gap between our aspirations and reality, we find comfort in the compassionate presence of a Savior who walked in us, who walked in our pain, who understands the intricacies of our troubles. And this profound understanding of the Christmas story transcends from a seasonal celebration to becoming a source of enduring comfort and hope here and now. 
Merry Christmas, everyone. I pray this story about Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and how Jesus welcomes it is a reminder. Yeah, life is not perfect. Life will never be perfect. Here we find so much comfort in celebrating the one who came to be with us. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of the reason for season. And Lord, even in church, we can make Christmas about everything else but the Savior Jesus. And I just pray in this season, as we spend Christmas Eve today and tomorrow, that we are reminded once again, the message of Christmas is not, oh, we got to be happy and jolly and make it until we can do it. It's that, Jesus, you came to our broken home. You've entered our ghetto to walk in our shoes, to rescue us, to hang on the tree so that the, the righteous wrath of God that we, that we deserve would pass us. Father, I pray for anyone that is discouraged this afternoon, anyone that is anxious, that has a feeling of discontentment, would you meet them? Would you meet us wherever we are? Would you speak to us? Would you comfort us? And we thank you, Jesus. The one who knew no sin became sin for us.